Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. You're listening to the Naked Scientists with me, Martha Henriquez, Jane Reck, Mira Senthalingam, and Alan Boyd. The London 2012 Paralympics have now concluded, but away from the stories of athletes' training and how they perform, there's another side to the Paralympics that's often overlooked. A significant amount of new research and innovation goes on as part of preparations and support for athletes participating in the Games. Jane Reck has been to Loughborough University to find out how one sport in particular is benefiting, wheelchair basketball. Wheelchair basketball is, is a very dynamic sport and the players will manoeuvre incredibly quickly and with versatility around the court to the point where they'll tilt backwards, they'll roll over, they'll bump into the floor and each other. As Professor Mike Kane explains, wheelchair basketball is not for the faint-hearted. It's fast, rigorous and tough. Mike is director of the world-leading Sports Technology Institute at Loughborough University. Researchers here have been improving seat design for the sport. British athletes competing at London 2012 have custom-made seats to suit their individual requirements. If you were to look at the chairs used in London, they would all look different. If you have an athlete that has a trauma to the spinal cord that's very high then often they will have lost the ability to stabilise their trunk. So I'm thinking here about their torso, the the abdominal area, their lower back. And so they need a seat configuration that's much more supportive around the lumbar area, the lower spine. If on the flip side you look at an athlete and they've got very strong abdominal muscles, their lower back is well conditioned, they're very flexible, they don't need that support and it actually gets in their way. They want to be more manoeuvrable and they have a stripped down seat where they have the minimal amount of support that promotes the the biggest range of movement. And there are many nuances within that continuum, but that's perhaps an example of the two most extreme versions. The research labs at the Institute are wonderfully surreal. You can see anything from running shoes being put through their paces on a huge test bed to headless mannequins wearing newly designed clothing. To produce the wheelchair seats, 3D scans of the athletes are taken. Moulding bags, similar to beanbag star seats containing polystyrene balls, are also used to capture the shape of the player when seated. The seat is then made up by hand. Computer-aided design, or CAD as it's known, is then used to refine the shape. Using this prototype, copies of the seat can be quickly produced for testing using an additive manufacturing technique called selective laser sintering, otherwise known as 3D printing. In this, the seat is physically built up layer by layer. Dr Gavin Williams explains more. Initially, what we've used 3D scanning for is capturing the position of the player in their current chair and then capturing the player whilst they've been moulded for their new seat. So that it ensures that we're positioning the player once they've been moulded for their new seat in, in the same position they are in the current seat. It's very difficult to capture their, how they're positioned in terms of seat height and bucket angle, backrest height, those kinds of aspects positioned relative to the, to the wheels. The players that we're dealing with, the elite players, have formed that setup 
over many years in some cases. So they know that that setup works, that position works. So we need to recreate that exactly. So we, we use 3D scanning to digitize their position. And then once it's in a 3D computer package, um, I can then take measurements accurately. I can then add, modify very easily features or certain aspects of the seat which help it interface with the frame more effectively. Selective laser sintering or um, 3D printing basically uses a laser to sinter a powder material and it builds it up in very fine layers to recreate the outside shell of the seat. So the finished article, once it's been taken out of the machine, is effectively a exact replication of what was on the computer screen 24 hours earlier. There's different powders or polymers that can re- recreate certain plastics. We use one that replicates the flexibility of polypropylene, which gives good flexibility without the brittleness, so it's strong but yet allows flex in certain areas. The significant aspect of the research, according to Gavin, is that it's combining these different processes to produce the tailor-made seats. It's bringing together the, all these technologies into one sports chair. The advantage of, of additive manufacturing mainly is that there's no mould required, so you don't have to make a mould to then make the product. You're making the product directly from the CAD model. What we've been able to do is introduce complete customization into the wheelchair, which are already made to measure, but we've introduced a, a new level of, of customization. In the tests that we've been doing, we, we, we do some straight-line sprint tests and some agility tests, and we are managing to shave vital, albeit tenths of a seconds, off those times, in a, in a game like basketball, wheelchair basketball, those kind of short, sharp sprints, twisting and turning, you know, tenths of a second can matter greatly. In the long term, the research could also be used to customise seat design for wheelchair users in general, improving comfort and mobility and reducing injuries from pressure sores. Jane Reck reporting on the cutting-edge seat designs being used by the Wheelchair Basketball Paralympics GB team, who will hopefully fare better against the US next time in Rio. There's also an audio slideshow on this story, which includes images of the new seats being used by the athletes. You can find it on the EPSRC YouTube channel at www.youtube.com forward slash EPSRC video or do a search on YouTube for the title Best Seats in the House for Paralympics GB Hopefuls. And now a look at what else has been making scientific headlines this week, including the discovery that chopping down a forest can affect local rainfall. Here's Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientists News Flash. The idea that time slows down for athletes as they prepare for actions during a sport, such as hitting a ball, may hold some truth. By testing the reactions of volunteers to lights flashing on a screen, Nobuhiro Hagura from University College London found that when tests involved a physical movement to tap the screen, individuals felt they had more time to react than when no movement was needed at all. The results, published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, suggest this slowing down of time could be due to more visual information coming in through the eyes as someone prepares to move. If something happens in the environment, you have to change your action according to the environmental change. So before actually initiating the action, we think that the brain is enhancing the visual processing. The amount of information you receive from the visual world, that leads to the percept of long time and slower time. This time perception stuff occurs uh, enhanced in the athletes because they know exactly what to do at the given situation, so they are more efficient in preparing for action. Another possibility is that uh, the motor module and the visual module in their brain is actually stronger than normal people. 
Deforestation could cause a reduction in rainfall of up to 21% in regions surrounding the Amazon basin, according to work published in Nature. When forests are cleared to provide land for crops or pastures, the amount of water returned into the atmosphere by evaporation and transpiration is decreased, leading to lower humidity and rainfall in surrounding areas as air passes over the region. Using atmospheric models and satellite data of tropical rainfall, Dominic Spracklin from the University of Leeds found that air passing over a rainforest region produces at least twice as much rainfall in the following days than air passing over more scarce vegetation. Continued deforestation in these areas could therefore have a large effect on local economies. Forests are impacting rainfall in remote regions. So forests in the Amazon Basin are impacting rainfall hundreds and and thousands of kilometres downwind in regions of southern Brazil and Paraguay and Uruguay. These regions here are regions where a lot of people live and they're regions where agriculture um, is particularly important to Brazil's economy and regions where hydroelectric power is important for, for, for producing electricity for Brazil. Countries like Brazil have to protect their existing forests if they want to maintain rainfall patterns over other parts of their country. 3D imaging has identified the potency and mechanisms of a new drug to fight tuberculosis. Publishing in Science Translational Medicine, Stuart Cole and colleagues from the École Polytechnique de Fédérale in Lausanne used X-ray crystallography to create a 3D model of the benzothiazinone drug BTZ043 and its interaction with an enzyme crucial to the production of the cell wall in Mycobacterium tuberculosis, the bacterium behind the disease. The team identified the presence of a weak spot in the enzyme, which the drug targets to inhibit activity and kill the bacterium revealing the potency of this drug candidate. Tuberculosis is a huge public health problem and there haven't been any new, new drugs for over 40 years. One of the problems is due to the fact that there haven't been any decent drug targets identified. In our work, we found a, a new target, obtained the structure of this target in complex with a candidate drug. This helps us to understand how the drug works and it also helps us to be able to improve it. So really, this is quite an important step forward. Sex pheromones released by adult moths to attract a mate also attract a hungry caterpillar, as revealed by researchers at INRA in Versailles. Working with larvae of cotton leaf worms and feeding them with plain food or food mixed with pheromones, Emmanuel Jacanjoli found that the caterpillars were attracted to meals laced with female pheromone, regardless of their own gender and their sexual immaturity. The use of pheromones to find food could be a way to ensure suitable plants as food sources for the growing insect and offers potential for the pheromones to be used in pest control. These caterpillars are in fact sexually immature, so it's very difficult to understand why they would be interested in a sex signal. So our hypothesis is that um, the pheromone could be a unique cue that they use to find food released by the mother, by the female, then it's only a single cue that the, the larvae can follow to find a good, to find a good plant. It could be used in pest control, for example, trapping the insect, simply adding pheromones to a food traps, for example. And that work was published in the journal Nature Communications. Mira sent the lingam, and you can find the references and transcripts for those stories on our website at nakedscientists.com news.
Next, Kate Britton at the University of Aberdeen has been investigating an abandoned Arctic settlement in West Alaska called Nunalek, which was active from 1350 to 1650 AD. Britton and her colleagues found thousands of man-made artefacts from this abandoned settlement that were preserved in the permafrost. Now, because of climate change, the permafrost is melting, releasing the settlement for archaeologists to study. Perhaps the most interesting remains are an unprecedented number of human hair samples from around 50 individuals. Britton told me how she is analysing these samples to find out about the people who lived in Nunalek. So the method I use is called stable isotope analysis, and we're measuring isotopes of carbon and nitrogen. So isotopes are sort of different versions of individual elements. So we're looking at uh, the ratio of carbon 12 and 13 and nitrogen 14 and 15. And these uh, different isotopes have different uh, masses, if you like, and that causes them to behave slightly differently in, in different parts of the ecosystem. And um, certain parts of the ecosystem can have particular isotopic signals. So, for example, we can use carbon isotopes to differentiate between marine and terrestrial ecosystems because the source of carbon in terrestrial ecosystems is atmospheric carbon and the source in marine ecosystems is dissolved in organic carbon, which have very different isotope signatures. Those signatures pass into the primary producers within those ecosystems and then up into animals and eventually into humans. Nitrogen works under a different mechanism. Here we're looking at something called trophic level enrichment, which affects the nitrogen isotope signature up the food chain. Basically, with every step up the food chain, you have an enrichment, and that can allow you to pinpoint the types of animals people were eating. And if you combine those two methods, the carbon and the nitrogen together, you get an idea of whether the resources were marine or terrestrial, and then also the trophic level of resources. So, for example, a herbivore, a terrestrial herbivore, would have very low nitrogen and more negative carbon, and a marine mammal, which is obviously the top of the food chain in, in the ocean, would have very high nitrogen and more positive carbon. These isotopic signatures can tell archaeologists about the diets of Nunalek's inhabitants and how much or little these diets varied seasonally. So what we can do is not just take um, a section of hair, but also subsample that hair and look at variations in the stable isotope signature, in the stable isotopes of carbon and nitrogen, all the way down the hair and to see whether there's any evidence for seasonal resource use. And obviously we're dealing with an area that's very seasonally bioproductive in the sense that you have lots of resources available for short periods of time. Traditionally, there's this idea that that kind of environment would be very, very difficult to live in, that you would have seasonal food shortages or so. Um, but actually what we've found, um, preliminary evidence suggests that actually if you look at the hair growth and the changes in isotope data through the hair, there actually aren't very many, which is very interesting. That seems to tell us that they not only had a more of a mixed diet incorporating terrestrial and uh, marine resources, so things like salmon and caribou and even marine mammals, but that they were eating seasonally available resources throughout the year. And of course, that tells us a lot about things like storage and seasonal provisioning and really is testament to the amazing um, Arctic adaptations these, these groups had. That was Kate Britton at the University of Aberdeen, and she's also working on this project at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. While some of the naked scientists were in Aberdeen for the British Science Association's festival, another naked scientist, Alan Boyd, was at the other BSA conference, the British Society for Audiology Conference in Nottingham, to find out what's new in hearing research. 
Professor Kevin Munro, Professor of Audiology at the University of Manchester and the newly appointed Chair of the BSA, introduced the conference. So the BSA formed about 45 years ago, in the late 60s, a group of people who wanted to advance uh, the understanding of audiology. We're in Nottingham for the next two or three days. Uh, there's about 250, 300 participants and delegates here. We have a large exhibition of companies. In terms of presentations, we have people who do basic research through translational research to applied clinical research. And then we also have people who are working in clinical practice. So the conference is an opportunity to bring together both researchers and people who are working at the coalface. At the Medical Research Council's Institute of Hearing Research in Glasgow, Dr Owen Brimajoin has been using a well-known games console controller to research our ability to tell where sounds are coming from. We were studying how it is that even though your head is always moving, it doesn't seem like the world is moving. We used a combination of different ways of motion tracking head movements. We have a uh, really fancy Vicon motion tracking system that we can use. We also use Nintendo Wii remotes uh, to do motion tracking. Uh, It's a really portable and inexpensive way to get head movements. We found that people definitely use head movements to give their world a spatial quality. But it's looking like people with hearing impairment uh, are not as able to take advantage of those moving cues as a result of their own movements. When we give these people a hearing aid to try to help, help them hear better... Uh, the hearing aids are not only not helping them with these moving sounds, they're actually making, these, making it harder for them. But what if your hearing loss requires something more powerful than a hearing aid? Often direct electrical stimulation of the inner ear, or cochlear, is required using a cochlear implant. Hi, my name is Andrew Neil, and I work for Medell UK. A cochlear implant is designed for patients with a severe to profound deafness, where hearing aids really probably wouldn't quite reach to. So the cochlear implant is an implantable device that fits into the cochlea and stimulates the nerves directly. How do we know what a cochlear implant user hears? Here's a simulation of what park life by blur might sound like for a cochlear implant user. Afterwards, Anne Wheatley, a PhD student at the Institute for Sound and Vibration Research at the University of Southampton, explains some of the issues involved in creating simulations of what cochlear implant users hear. that we've just heard is only looking at what the cochlear implant processor is actually doing to what we know as park life. When you think of what a cochlear implant user, how they're hearing music in a real world environment, that's obviously coming from the environment they're listening to it in through their speech processor and then it's being delivered to the electrode array which is inserted into their cochlear. So that's stimulating a number of different areas in the cochlea according to how the processor is is choosing which parts of the the pitches and which parts of the music should go into which parts of the cochlea. Once it gets there, the, the electric current that's generated can spread across a number of different electrodes which can cause... Um, a messier signal, so it won't necessarily be how we've just heard it as to how the cochlear implant user hears it. And finally, here's Rob McKinnon, a PhD student at the NIHR Nottingham Hearing Biomedical Research Unit, to talk about his work linking noise exposure and hearing loss through large-scale surveys. We hear all the time in mainstream media that loud music will damage your hearing, but uh, when we actually look at the evidence that we have, 
we see evidence for short-term temporary hearing loss, but there's very little evidence to support a long-term permanent hearing loss, and that's what we're investigating. Well, we've, we've developed um, a pair of tools which go out online, so the whole study is done on the internet. Nobody ever even has to come into the unit. Participants will complete a questionnaire which will ask them lots of things about their hearing and then um, also about their exposure to loud noises and loud music. They'll also complete a simple hearing test as well which will ask them to pick out numbers in a background noise and we can marry the results together and see if there are any associations. To take part in the study, you need to be aged between around 30 and 65 years old. Go to www.hearing.nihr.com ac.uk forward slash music to register your interest. And if this short roundup of what's new in auditory research left you wanting more, stay subscribed to this feed for a more in-depth look at the research on show at the BSA to be released soon. That was Alan Boyd, who's currently doing an MRC internship with the Naked Scientists, reporting from the BSA conference in Nottingham. The Naked Scientists Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.